Well, welcome back to another episode of the Boombasticast with the one and only Alexander Hawk and the great Matthew Fisher. Well, I don't like that. that pa- there was a little too long of a pause there before you popped in, but I can, I'll can. i take that. Thank you very much. That's a great compliment coming from a man like yourself. Well, well, dude, dude, you have to build up the suspense. You have to, you know, make them want it a little more. That's true. That's true. I'm, I was in full suspense. I didn't know where it was going to go. I was so scared for a moment. So how you doing, Hawk? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh... I already delved into some of the greatest, you know, dark and shocking movie secrets. Ooh. This is, yeah, an interesting one. Uh, we got a nice list of, of all the, a bunch of movies. This is going to be a multi-volume expedition, you know what I mean? Um, we all love films, you know, and uh, some films we know, some of the dark secrets behind making them, you know, crazy things that happen and stuff, you know, of course, like everybody knows about the crow, you know what I mean? Uh, probably the most biggest one I'd say right off the top of the bat, you know what I mean? Uh, the, the death of that, you know, twilight zone movie, you got the death of course, you know what I mean? I'm sure that not like, uh, you know, I don't know if that, that rust movie will ever come out, but if that rust movie ever comes out, that's going to have, that's going to have one of those, you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't think that movie's ever going to make the light of day. It might be hidden in the vault forever after what happened. Well, it could be one of those things. It's like, I don't know how much of it was shot. I feel like if the, if the deciding factor in that is how much of it was done, you know what I mean? I, they're not going back on set to finish it. I got that vibe. But if there's enough of it to finish it, they'll probably try and finish it and release it. They won't promote it that much because it'll be a kind of in bad blood a little bit, you know, because of what happened. But well, I, I guess I they mean, could dedicate it and you know do all the proceeds to the family, you know, which would be kind of a cool thing to do. That probably yeah. that'd be the best route for that film to take, probably. Well, I mean, the thing is that I mean, you look at like the Batgirl movie; they shelled that, and that has nothing quite as as uh, taboo or as uh, shocking as what happened under us. I mean, they simply just didn't have enough faith in the in the product, and that film is totally done. And that's shelved with, from what I hear, their plan is never to ever release it. So, I mean, it's they can still do the same thing with us, where, you know, even if they do did end up uh, filming enough to actually make a uh, cohesive film, they might just decide that the bad publicity uh, outweighs uh, the worth of the film, all the money they put into it. So they might just decide just to shelve it and, and never release it. Yeah. Now, that Batgirl thing is super interesting. You know what I mean? Super interesting. Because it's just like, why would that just get shelved? I would love to know the real story. I'd love to know the doc secret behind that movie of why you know, it, it got shelved. A lot of people saying it's like a big sexist choice because it's a girl thing. Um, I, I don't know. I feel like now would be as girl is like very girl power. Issue. I think a lot of money is to be made releasing a Batgirl. You know what I mean? I don't know. Well, I really, I, it's got to be something super dark, you know, that like not me, not even the film, somebody involved with the film. You know what I mean? That you know, you'll you'll see one of those characters never never do anything again, and you'll go, "That's interesting." They never did anything again, and then years later, there'll be like some weird fucking, 
they found like a whole family like eating on his kitchen table or something like that. <laughs> Maybe. You know what I mean? Maybe. Or it had it had like a it had like a COVID tie to it because of the bat situation. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> something crazy like that, and uh, they didn't approve. And, and if that's the case, Batman should never be made again. Then it's yeah. well. There's enough of them you could probably hold off for a little bit. You know, it kind of, you know, it's really interesting, you know, because something like that, you know, the script got okayed, the shooting was all okay, and then somewhere in post-production or somewhere in the marketing of the film, they said, all right, this can't be seen. So much fucking money was wasted if that, you know what I mean, if that movie really is well, well, I, Well, from what I heard, uh, because of them shelving and all that and insurance, they're actually getting a uh, paid out for shelving it. So, yeah. Wow. So, I mean, I don't know all the logistics or everything about it. Uh, yeah, you're right. There's something shady going on. Yikes. Um, yeah, so. That is, that is definitely the equivalent to burning down your restaurant when you can't afford it anymore. Yeah, I That's mean. That's a very the, weird thing. The impression I got is that they made the film and whoever's in charge decided that, well, you know, we don't think whether they didn't think the actress was gave a great enough performance that was going to hold it, or they didn't think that enough people would go and see it because it was a uh, Latina um, uh, a uh, uh, playing uh, playing Batgirl, which I'm I'm fine as far as I'm concerned. Anyone can play Batgirl. Anyone can play Batman. I mean, heck, I'm waiting for. African American guy you played Batman. I think that'd be perfectly fine, in my opinion. Right. But you know, I mean, they're all characters you have can have different nationalities play them. I mean, the only time I think nationality should be an issue when playing uh, characters is when you're playing historical characters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, does that like, play such a big part? Or well, I I mean, I don't know, but I mean. The, thing is, especially in, in today's culture, a lot of people, you know, get on, on movies about, you know, not being diverse enough and all that. In yeah. my opinion, if you're dealing with, I mean, especially with the comic book characters, a lot of people are like, well, you know, this person wasn't, uh, you know, this nationality. Uh, uh, that's not being true to the original concept. I mean, right now, you have people getting upset about having um, Guzman playing Gomez Adams, okay? Now, first of all, okay, Gomez, I mean, yeah, I mean, the name is, you, you expect a, a Latino gentleman to play the role, okay? Um, their biggest thing is that they don't think that he's good-looking enough to play Gomez. But then again, if you look at the original uh, cartoons that were created out of the Adams family even before the TV series... I mean, he was a short, dumpy, weird-looking toe kind of guy. Kind of looks closer to Peter Lorre than anyone else. I agree with that. And and the fact is that, I mean, th this kind of stuff, I don't think. I mean, if you're doing, for example, you, you're doing a, a film about the Genghis Khan, you shouldn't have John Wayne play it. You know, it's, I mean, things like that. I, I totally agree with is if you're doing an actual historical piece, you should have the the, the right uh, people playing the right you know ethnicities, whatever the you know historical piece you're doing. Well, 
I only I only disagree in the fact that the Alexander Hawk should play every role known to man and woman. You know what I mean? And child and animal. Uh, maybe even uh, plants and fish. You know what I mean? If need be. I, I, I do have a great range, but I don't think that uh, I, I can accompli- uh, accomplish all of that. But I am happy that my friend uh, Matt uh, has, has uh, thought of me in that way and my talent being so versatile. But I, uh, but I, 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 will, I will step back if anyone wants me to play Genghis Khan. I've been in talks with Disney for the last three years about getting an incredible Mr. Limpet off the ground starring Alexander Hogg, uh, <laughs> Don Knotts role. Um, I like that. One, one of my dream bucket list projects to do, um, followed up by, of course, The Ghost of Mr. Chicken starring Alexander Hawk, which will be my real two. That's the one they'll put on my obituary. Uh, they'll say director of The Ghost of Mr. Chicken reboot starring Alexander the Hawk, Matthew Fisher. I like that. I can, I, I can do that. So, you know, we're talking about all, you know, the, the, the movie, like that Batgirl getting tossed, tossed is like the insurance thing now makes a little more sense. But, you know, we had a brief little talk about that uh, before because it was such a crazy thing in Hollywood. You know what I mean? And that kind of where, where, where that's where today's kind of topic, which we're probably going to stretch this out because there's so many dark and twisted tales involved with some of the, you know, the big films out there. Maybe not your favorite, maybe your least favorite movie. It's got a dark tale, just like your favorite movie's got a dark tale. You know, me and Alex can uh, attest to telling you movie making is no easy feat. Uh, There's a lot of room for error. You know, even if you have a hundred million dollars, it doesn't mean you're going to make a good movie. You know, you can see a movie made for 50 cents. It's better than a Five hundred million dollar movie, you know what I mean? Uh, more money, more money, more problems, as Biggie says. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, a, it's a crazy deal. So we wanted to kind of crack into some of um, some of those darkest secrets uh, that lurk in the shadows of the Hollywood mach- machine that uh, you may know, may not know about. And you know, we'll do our our good old boombastic cast and commentary and uh, opinions on such things and films. And uh, maybe add a little bit of our own conspiracy to the deal. We'll see here. We'll see how it gets twisted. Um, by the time we get through all these, hopefully we'll have some answers on that Batgirl situation for you. We got Buddy Butterfuco in the streets of California asking every homeless person for the info <laughs> scoop uh, and doing drugs with them to make sure they're happy and in a good place where they feel very open with him to give him the truth. And uh, he says he'll be back with, a whole bunch of info on that in the future. So hopefully we can wrap, cap this whole thing off with the truth. Yeah. Batgirl 2020, huh? Exactly. Nobody knows yet. We'll see it somewhere. It'll, it'll probably go on streaming. I don't know what the deal is with that, but Alexander, let's pop into this segment today, huh? Uh, yeah. Lead the parade. You are the ringmaster of disaster. Okay. Now the first one actually isn't that big of a, 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 a secret or a disaster on set uh, yeah. in in the, in the fact that it's not it's kind of something that happens a lot uh, especially when you're doing films that uh, where you have a, a a male lead and a female lead that are supposed to be in love or married or boyfriend girlfriend I mean we all know that uh, what we see on the screen isn't always what uh, is it's like behind scenes. And a perfect example of that is the movie The Notebook. It yeah. seems that Rachel McAdams and Ryan Gosling 
couldn't stand working to each other to a point where I believe Ryan Gosling actually tried to get her picked off set and get her replaced. Now, luckily, they were able to um, find a way to put the differences aside and get the job done. I do actually think that the uh, kind of animosity kind of helped with the the uh, the story in a way because I, from my memory of watching the movie, the two of them, you know, they're from two different sides of of the track, and they all they always had kind of a very, um, you know, kind of like a combative relationship, which you know is a case for a lot of relationships. Not all relationships are, you know, starry-eyed, moony-eyed over each other, and, you know, everything is, you know, uh, ro- uh, bed of roses. And um, to be perfectly honest, my personal opinion about the movie, what made the movie wasn't even those two actors. I mean, I like both of them. Both of them are very talented actors and are really good. But what made the movie is the older couple where you find out that the gentleman keeps on coming to her and reading from the notebook telling her of their relationship because she has Alzheimer's and she doesn't remember all of it. And then, of course, at the end, the two of them are laying in bed and they suddenly die in their sleep together, which is a very romantic and very kind of... uh symbolic of, you know, two people who have loved each other for so long, you know, going together to heaven. And, I mean, for a romantic story, that is like the perfect exclamation point at the end of a movie. And, in my opinion, that's what made the movie. I mean, the fact that, you know, Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams had, you know, problems with each other on set, while probably made things a lot harder to get things done, in the long run, probably helped the movie a little bit by showing, you know, the turmoils of a young relationship between two people from totally different uh, ways of life. So, that's just how I see it with that. What do you think? Yeah, I remember always hearing about that beef they had on set and the replacement type deal. It's, uh... It's a very interesting dynamic because, you know, it's almost one of those things where, you know, I feel like an actor that, like a really great act, actor that wants to go deeper than the, the flesh and go to the surface, really psychological element to it, would want that kind of, they want that spark in the eye of love or crazy or whatever, and they go there to get it. Um, it this could have been some master plan behind the scenes. Of, of them not getting along to have some type of tension there. You know, they say there's a thin love, thin line between love and hate. You know what I mean? So if you can tap into one and it's way easier to make people hate each other than to love them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Ask the uh, powers that be, but I think that that's, the, I think that could have been a play too. You know what I mean? Uh, whether it was, uh, you know, the actors making that decision, maybe it was a collaborative actor thing. Maybe it was one of the actors, maybe it was the director kind of created a weird environment, you know, anything could kind of be a play. Um, but I always remembered that the notebook is a movie. I don't think I've ever seen, but it's a movie that everybody's always told me was great. You know, I don't, my cousin who I highly respect his opinion in film, you know, I remember he watched it, you know, when that came out, we were, we were, I was probably like, what were we like in our early twenties or so mid twenties, you know, that wasn't kind of, that was no, uh, not that I watch a lot of uh, romantic comedies (laughs) and, and, and love stories now, 
because I try not to. You know, what oh, I mean, I'm he not, only watches them when we're together. Only right when we're together, and we're in bed right before we're about to die. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's yeah, the only that's... time. But I've always heard high regards for this film, and Ryan Gosling. Out of all the actors with pretty faces, Ryan Gosling's my favorite. Probably, I think he's super talented, and he has the look to sell all the books. You know what I mean? I would sell Frankie and Magamo's cookbook, and uh, so and he's a great actor, like I said. Yeah, uh, but but he will always be young Hercules to me. Okay, you'll uh, always be young Hercules. You know, he came up in the game. I wonder what. Uh, I wonder if he was. He could have been a little difficult. I'm a big fan. You know, what I mean, those wrestlers. Well, I mean, he was. He was a Disney kid, so I. And so he had a lot of training early on. So I mean, there's Disney kids like uh, Justin Timberlake that go into great things. And there are those that kind of fizzle out, like Lindsay Lohan. But, yeah, but you know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to be Lindsay Lohan, even with all the troubles. You know, even the one that the ones that fizzled out, like. They, they got the extreme heights. I feel bad for the Mickey Mouse Club people that didn't go anywhere. You know what I mean? You look at your the alumni around you, Britney Spears, Justin Timberlake, Ryan Gosling, and you're working at fucking, you're selling donuts or something. And uh, you're, uh, you're like, well, huh. Well, you know, uh, okay. And then you go home and, you know, they call you Jonathan Brandis Jr. sometimes after <laughs> you're gone. It's a very unfortunate event. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, the Mickey Mouse Club's a dark deal too, because that was that's from a time when you know a lot of wild shit would be happening behind the scenes, a lot of those dark secrets behind the scenes, and uh, never a good thing. Never, I could never really imagine it being normalized in anybody's mind, like to something that's just a norm. But I mean, it was not talked about. I once people started talking about it, I think that's when it kind of slowed down because now people are like, oh shit, I'm gonna get proven to be a fucking piece of garbage so they kind of slowed it down or maybe moved it more behind the scenes but i think in that era i wouldn't you know i bet there was some heavy padding by fucking inappropriate people probably at times on set like in front of everybody um you know like that whole the fatherly grandfatherly approach that you would like kind of see where they'd be like complete strangers but they work together and they're all sitting on laps and hugging and all that shit and probably even fucking kissing on cheeks and maybe even lips who the fuck knows in front of people. Very ugly shit. Um, dark secrets that I'm sure we'll far venture further into here, but look how far we ventured. with just talking about Ryan Gosling. We've already got down to the pedophilia world of fucking yeah. Mickey Mouse club. Um, all right. So I'll go up next. You know, the next movie, uh, the Brendan Fraser blockbuster, the mummy, which, you know, yeah. I was, I was, I was a big fan of this film when it came out. This is probably the, the, the peak of Brendan Fraser's, you know, he's on his comeback now. Uh, but this was like probably when he was popping heavy and see, no man was a big deal for him. I think that was like the mid nineties and mummy was a was a couple years after that. So that was really kind of where he, uh, he really kind of was heavily popping and he did two of them. Right. And then by the third one, the rock was taken over. Well, no, no, no. Uh, with uh, The Mummy, he was in all three of those. The one where The Rock took over actually was the Four. movie. No, no, no. It was The Journey to the Center of the Earth. No, was... I mean like The Rock eventually came into The Mummy franchise. No, no. No? No. With the, wasn't he the Scorpion King? Or something yeah, like yeah, that? but but he didn't take over for Brendan Fraser. I, the way I remember it is there was like Brendan Fraser did like maybe two of the movies. Then the third one was like... The Rock character was introduced, 
And then it was no. Brendan Fraser, and then it just, then Brendan Fraser was gone, and it was just The Rock for the next one. Kind of no, like no, that no. when he did when he did the fucking the movie with Statham. I remember he did like um, the Fast and Furious movie, and then yeah. supposedly he didn't get along with people on Fast and Furious. Yeah, and then and he him did. And Statham did their own like side okay. project thing. Okay, okay. It was okay. kind of like that, I think. Because yeah, I mean, I mean, I, okay, I see where you were going. I. Well, the thing is, this is this is how it happened, okay? Yeah. On the second movie, The Rock came in as the Scorpion King, okay? Yeah. There, was oh, a yeah. thir- there was a third Mummy movie, but uh was no Rock. It was uh, Brendan Fraser, the guy who played the brother, and then a whole new cast of characters. I like that guy, yeah. Okay. Now, they did do a Scorpion King movie with um, The Rock, uh, which they did shortly after uh, Mummy 2. But there was another one, The Emperor's Tomb, with Jet Li, uh, which was actually technically the third Mummy movie with Brendan Fraser. Okay. Uh, and then later on, which I got confused because there was a time where he had Brendan Fraser who was doing Journey to the Center of the Earth, and then yeah, they okay. dis- uh, there was an issue, and they decided to do a sequel without Brendan Fraser, but they brought in The Rock to replace him. So they replaced Brendan Fraser with The Rock twice, huh? Pretty much. Wow, there's a fun, there's a fun dark secret for the world right there. Yeah, but I mean, the big thing is, as uh, we were talking uh, th- uh, about the Mummy itself, was that uh, I think a lot of people already know this was the fact that uh, Brendan F- uh, Fraser almost hanged himself while doing the stunt That's because. True. Um, if you remember in the movie, there's a point where he's at the gallows and Evelyn is arguing with the warden trying to get him free yeah. and the trap doors are flung and he starts to hang. Now, Brendan Fraser, uh, like a lot of other young, uh, action stars wanted to do their, uh, uh, their own stunts. And that was one of the things that he was doing and there was a, a mishap and he actually started to choke to, uh, uh, get hanged and to a point where he actually passed out and had to be revived. Mm. Now, this actually goes into a longer thing that, I mean, Brendan Fraser is now having a comeback. And a lot of people have made a comment that, you know, he's definitely has, you know, gotten bigger and all that. And And the fact is, because he did all his own stunts in The Mummy, George of the Jungle, and all those other things, it took a, po- a toll on his body, and unfortunately, you know, he, he's 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 dealing with a lot of pain. That's why he kind of fell out of the like, uh, you know, out of the spotlight for so many years. And I mean, me being a huge Brendan Fraser fan, I am so happy that he's come back because he's a, a very talented guy. And it's a shame of all the, the stuff that happened to him, which you know made things difficult for him for so long. And uh, there was a while where people just gave him a lot of crap because, you know, he put on the weight and he wasn't the, you know, handsome 20-year-old he was before. But, I mean, I got news for you. Not everyone can be, you know, 20-year-old forever. Not everyone's Tom Cruise, okay? And Tom Cruise is the way he is because he has billions upon billions of dollars to just, spend his entire day working out and, you know, doing the movie. Tom Cruise isn't Tom Cruise anymore. He's a body snatcher. Yeah. 
But I mean, the thing is that uh, that was only um, one of many uh, different uh, stunts that he did that took a toll on his body. And unfortunately, he ended up paying for it when he got older. And that's one reasons why, you know, he's, you know, he actually had to leave. I believe that's the main reason why he had to leave the uh, spotlight for as long as he did before he came back. Yeah. You know, the thing you said about the stunts, you know, he was probably hitting the gym a lot back in the, the, then to stay in shape. And, you know, uh, you know, muscle, muscle can turn to fat, but fat can't turn to muscle to quote the great Vinny Paz. But it's quite possible that, you know, once he started doing those physical acting jobs, he wasn't really hitting the gym anymore. And that, that, that muscle just eventually kind of came down, um, and then I think uh, I think in a situation like that, you almost have uh, you look bigger because you have like the muscle on the outside with some, maybe some fat underneath type deal. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which would me, me and Mr. Alexander Hawk know all about that because we're, <laughs> we're buff motherfuckers. Which way to the beach, brother? Which way to the beach? So speaking of the beach, uh, the next film up we got is a Titanic film, which was a fucking Titanic film. If you don't know about it, you better ask somebody. Um, huge film. Um, uh, you know, James Cameron, it was one of those, you know, the dude who's kind of reinvented film a few times. James Cameron's a dude that he, he, he kind of goes under the radar of appreciation a little bit. He gets huge, huge respect, but he's, he's right up there with you take, you take inspiration from a dude like, like the inspir like the influence that Steven Spielberg has on film. I think James Cameron stands shoulder to shoulder with Steven Spielberg. Um, with the, as far as body of work goes, you know what I mean? And belovedness and all that good stuff. But I was like, uh, you know, I've, I've watched the behind the scenes on Titanic and it's just a big film with so much stuff going on that it's like, you would assume there would be a body count with it. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I'm not, uh, I'm not surprised it definitely made the list. Now I know you wanted to talk about the Titanic a little bit. Well, I mean, I, I have to admit, I remember going uh see Titanic because it was a big thing, go to the movies. And I have to say, I stood up and I cheered when Leo died. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, but uh like going off the notebook, I, I mean, the reason I ended up going to the movie theater was against my own will in that case. Yeah. But... um but uh, it's funny because um, uh, we found out on this list that supposedly the entire cast got high on PS PCP. Yeah. Okay. Now I have to admit, honestly, um, I don't know when this happened. I hope this happened before the big Titanic. Um, no, uh, it was you know crashing into the iceberg scene <laughs> because that would have been yeah. But suppose. Supposedly, um, someone spiked a bowl of chowder or something that they were eating together. Even uh, Kevin got a little dose of it, and uh, no one got, uh, no one died or anything. I mean, everyone was rushed to the hospital. Uh, they were a bit giggly, but uh, it is kind of interesting that someone thought, "Hey, this uh, this trap uh, some PCP uh, and see what happens to uh, the uh, Titanic crew." Um, yeah, I remember it was a, a like a celebration dinner that I, I don't think it was a part of filming. I think it was like an end of the day or end of the shoot type vibe. 
Um, PCP is a weird one because PCP is a fucking heavy drug. It's not really like a party drug. Like if somebody said, oh, they slipped some acid into it or something like that, then you can go, oh, okay, they're going to be tripping out. And it's kind of, I guess, could be kind of fun or whatever. Um, but PCP, I've, when I first ever heard of PCP, it was on a Faces of Death movie. And they were like, watch this guy. He smoked PCP and he went crazy and ate somebody. And the cops had to beat him to death with, with nightclubs. You know what I mean? And they showed him on the ground fizzing out the mouth. Um, and it was like a big, like, uh, beware. So PCP is kind of burnt into my brain as being heavy duty stuff. I don't know what the, I've never done it. I don't think I've, you know, I, I, I can't think of, you know, whenever I meet someone that's done a heavy drug, you know, or something I've never tried. And it comes up, I always try to pick their brain on the experience and stuff like that. And I don't think I've ever talked to anybody that done no PCP. So maybe, you know, me and James Cameron are getting together for lunch tomorrow. Maybe I'll ask him <laughs> about it. Um, but, yeah, that's kind of a crazy deal. Like, you know what I mean? Some, some type of, like, marijuana drink, some THC drink into the punch. I could see something like that. Uh, but uh, PCP and the chowder. Uh, that should be a name in the documentary or something. PC yeah. Powder, that should be a band. Let's do it. Yeah. So, um, that's crazy. It'd be crazy to be on any hallucinative drug and do, like, uh, probably a- anything because it's all period piece type movies. So, like, stepping on set, you're probably like, whoa. You know what I mean? But let alone, imagine being, like, tripping balls uh, and you know, which just means Hawks never attempted anything like that. So just you, you, you assume that you'd assume everything was real around you. All right. So you put your, and you'd have a touch of fear to you probably too, a little extra touch of fear. And, um, but you could be, you could be free, because you're ready to die because you're on a James Cameron world. And now, you know, imagine like the scenes with the, with the boat going up and them sliding down. Imagine having to do that, like on something oh. crazy. Oh my God. Yeah. I'd be vomiting I mean, all over the place. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, like it says that, um, it happened after shooting and they were all rushed to the hospital afterwards. I mean, if that happened like at the beginning of shooting and they were going to do like that scene with the, Titanic and the iceberg. Oh shit! I mean, th- people could really have either gone hurt or died. Um, but luckily, I mean, I don't know whoever. I, I think it's crazy to spike anything in any kind of function uh, because you don't know how it's going to react to different people. Different people might be okay with it. Others might have like a major uh, meltdown. So you know. Don't mess with PCP, boys. If we ever have anybody on the show from Titanic, we'll have to try to remember to ask them if they know who did it. I assume it'd be a high, probably a higher up, whoever the clown, like an act, one of the actors that was a clown, you know, that like class clown on the set, or like a like a like a crew person, you know what I mean? Like a mid level crew person, someone who know that they weren't, they're not going to get terminated from. They're friendly with whoever, uh, or it could have just been outright. Somebody trying to be uh, ruthless. Like I said, PCP, I believe to be like a pretty heavy duty deal, which it's yeah. uh, not quite for pleasure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but then, hey, what's next up on the list? Well, do you want me to pop into this one? This, yeah, this, go ahead. Go this ahead. New, new age child childhood classic film. You know, this kind of came out around the time I think the Mummy was popping off too, and Titanic around the early two thousands type vibe. 
Uh, of course, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the Ron Howard Christmas classic starring your boy Jim Carrey. Um, fabulous. That's my favorite part of the movie. That got me going. Um, really fun. You know, it's a, they create a whole different world. You know, that you're trying to bring the Grinch to uh, the, the live action world, which they do pretty well. You know what I mean? Uh, it's something like that could be very easy to kind of fuck up. You know what I mean? People love it so much. Um, and there's a lot going on, but I think that, you know, I really think that how the, that would, I, that I'd probably put that number two, um, in cat in my list of, uh, where I ranked them right after the original cartoon, you know what I mean? But, uh, when the film was announced, a lot of people worried about, the Grinchy title and how we would look, you know what I mean? Now I know that the process for it was horrendous. It was like a lot of shit to do. Um, now he ended up having to go through an anti-torture training just to survive the ordeal. I don't really know, uh, how accurate that might be. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, I've, I'm going to just uh, jump in here for a second yes. that, um, now, I've read interviews with a bunch of different actors who have had to go under heavy prosthetic makeup for films. I know they can get lengthy. Yeah. And, and the thing is, there are some... Uh, now, I don't know Jim Carrey well enough or anything like that. Right. But I do know... I, I saw an interview with Andrew Robinson. Mm-hmm. Now, for those who don't know who he is... Um, he played Garrick, a Kardashian, in uh, Deep Space Nine, who was also the Scorpio killer in the first uh, Dirty Harry Clint Eastwood movie. Yeah. Now, anyway, the thing is, he suffers from claustrophobia. And when they were putting on the makeup, he started having a panic attack. And he didn't know if he was going to be able to play the role. Um, he was able to luckily be able to, uh, combat his claustrophobic, uh, uh, phobia tendencies and was able to actually use that in the role and help him portray the character very brilliantly. Now, I don't know if Jim Carrey suffers from any kind of claustrophobia. Um, if you do, I can definitely understand having a hard time doing all that. Yeah. Um, I know that there are those who go under um, uh, uh, prosthetic makeup that aren't used to it, and they don't realize how trying it is. For example, like Michael Chiklis playing the thing in the first Fantastic Four movie, that he didn't realize how hard it was going to be for him to move with all that latex on. And that could very simply be the same thing with Jim Carrey. Now, I mean, anyone who's seen the Grinch movie knows that, I mean, he's totally made up. He's under, like, all that yak hair and prosthetics and latex. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that if you're not accustomed to it, it takes a kind of, a certain kind of person who's able to, you know, deal with all that kind of stuff to be a a very good uh, monster um, actor. And, I mean, I've done a few films with people who had to get up in these big, elaborate uh, uh, latex outfits. And if you're not specifically mentally trained for it ahead of time, 
uh, with all the heat and all that, you can very easily, uh, you know, have a lot of issues. And I can, I can easily believe that Jim Carrey found himself so claustrophobic onto that, that he did need help, whether it was from an anti-torture, uh, uh, person who I helped but teach him how to deal with it that way or anyone else. Yeah, I know the effects were done by Rick Baker, who is, you know, America Wero from, uh, you know, London. Uh, what he's, you know, he was involved with, you know, the howling stuff without warning, my favorite aliens of all time. Uh, the It's Alive films. You know, it's, uh, I think I re- listened to an interview on a podcast where he was talking about that experience. Yeah, I think he said that it wasn't, it was very uncomfortable for, Jim Carrey and, um, you know, just from, you know, Rick Baker, the reputation, you know, that's a gigantic film. Um, Rick Baker is literally probably one of the greatest, you know, special makeup effects people to ever do it. I think he's since retired. He still has his workshop. I think he's still teaching and stuff like that. Um, he's on Instagram. Uh, if you don't follow him, you should, he's always doing makeups and putting them up there and they look ridiculous. Um, and yeah. You know, Rick Baker, not, not enough good things could be said about Rick Baker. But I think that, you know, a lot of touch-ups had to be done. And, uh, you know, yes, if you got to get under that makeup, that's a lot. You know what I mean? Jim Carrey wasn't – he was a huge star at that point. And I don't think he's ever done anything that heavy with makeup before. And it really is like wearing a big sack over your head all day. You know what I mean? That's tight and, you know, you don't want to be in it type deal. So, um yeah, you know what I mean? I think Fire Marshal Bill might be as crazy as his makeup job's gotten before that. And uh, Fire Marshal Bill is better than the Grinch, unfortunately. I think they still <laughs> live down, they live on the same street. But uh, <laughs> I definitely support that. So I can see that. Um, next up, my friend. Do you want me to take the next one? I'm more familiar with this one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is definitely in your belly wick. So this is the great... Uh, Cannibal Holocaust, you know what I mean? For anybody out there that doesn't know about Cannibal Holocaust, it's uh, it was like one of the first ever, like, almost found footage, found footage films, you know what I mean? Like the Blair Witch Project type deal. A lot of people say Blair Witch Project is, you know, is the official one, but Cannibal Holocaust really is, and there could be others. I, I think that even uh, there's like a UK film called Man Bites Dog that is like found footagey, like fake documentary style and really good. But this is uh, Ruggiero Diodato. You know, he made this movie about a bunch of documentarians going into the Amazon and they uh, stumbled, they're trying to like do a doc on a cannibal tribe. And, uh, you know, they do and they don't, you know, they, they don't like the fact that they're there. Long story short, you know, they do what you think they would do. You know, Eli Roth's The Green Inferno was kind of a reboot of it. We've seen that a couple of years ago. But um, I know with this story, it was so fucking crazy. There's there's killing of real animals in it, which is kind of a wild thing. You know, I don't condone that. I don't think you should do it, but it's a different time. And it does have a way different effect to the mind when you're watching it than, you know, seeing it fake. Not saying it's a good or a bad thing, probably more of a bad thing. Um, but like, you know, I know the director. Um, you know, there's a scene in there where they they cut off, they take someone's dick and they cut it off, and that's the only teaser I'll give. And it looks it looks ridiculously real. Um, so so much so that the, the director was uh, arrested to try to get him for murder. They had to go into the courtroom with the with the prince and the the the, the, the B roll. 
and the behind the scenes, lucky that shit didn't get thrown out um, and prove and probably bring the actors in and prove yeah. here they are. Yeah, okay. the actors actually did uh, have to show up to say, uh, especially there's okay. one where there's a woman that has a, a stake through her, her entire body. That's a gru- that's a gruesome scene. That visual for anybody out there that gets down with horror, they they've seen that. It's been burnt into their brain. That visual, yeah, yeah. She actually had to show up to tell the judge that she's actually still alive and that they did not kill her for the movie. It was masterful filmmaking, you know, kind of like like Faces of Death was another very controversial film of its day, where you know, thirty years later, you find out that you know the majority of it's fake. There's a certain stock footage in there of people dying, but like the majority of the crazy, you know, segments that are kind of filmed, you know, more current time at that time was all like kind of fake stuff. And I believe that director even caught himself in a lot of trouble too. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the way that they mash up because there's tribes people in it, you know what I mean? And uh, they definitely, I think the girl that gets the stake is uh, from one of the local tribes in the area. And she, like, did wrong, supposedly. So they, it was, like, almost like a ritualistic killing of people when they're exiled from the community type deal. So, like, it's very believable when that scene happened and it was shot from afar, uh, from the brush, you know what I mean? Very effective, you know, to sit down. Even when I watched it uh, as, like, a teenager, already seeing crazy things, you know, it really, I remember really being, like, taken back by it the images in that film. So like, I can only imagine what it was like when it came out. I think it came out in the late seventies, maybe early to mid eighties, but I think it was like late seventies, maybe even early seventies within that 10 year gap somewhere. Um, but ridiculous, ridiculous. Uh, I could definitely see that having, and I knew about that. I knew that he had to go on trial. You know, there's a few time directors have had to go on trial and I know, I know that's one of them. Um, next up, Hawkman, I'll let you dive into this because I know uh, you have Ruby. Well, closet. Yeah. This one, I mean, there's a lot of different uh, things that uh, people have said about this movie. And uh, actually, uh, the uh, thing we're going to focus on is one that I didn't know about, but actually I'm not 100% surprised because of how things were done back then. And that is the wonderful Wizard of Oz. Now, Now, the thing is that... Uh, it, I'm sure everyone's seen the movie. I mean, if you haven't, uh, uh, you definitely should. It is a classic. It's a very good movie. Um, but there is a, a little dog in the movie. The little dog is named Toto. Now, I don't know how, um, animal, um, animals get, um, you know, tre- uh, paid for or whatever nowadays. I'm sure that, you know, the owners that, that have the dog and all that get a, a, a good stipend or something like that. Yeah. But now, The Wizard of Oz was produced during the Great Depression, which means a lot of people were starving for work. And in The Wizard of Oz, they had a lot of uh, little people. And uh, the really sad part is... Toto the dog got paid more than they did, which is extremely horrendous uh, and 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 totally you know despicable uh, that uh, the dog Toto got paid more than they did. I mean, I mean, we're. I'm not saying that uh, things are perfect now, but we are trying very hard to try as a society uh, not. 
uh, fall into those habits of looking at people less than. And unfortunately, back then, they looked at uh, those who uh, were of small stature as less than. And, I mean, they paid them less than the uh, the dog in the movie, which which is, like I said, extremely, you know, unforgivable. Especially during a time when, you know, a lot of people were starving and a lot of people needed work and, you know, and there wasn't a lot of roles out there for, for people of, of, of that size. And, I mean, nowadays you have, like, uh, Warwick Davis, you got Peter Dinklage, which are really showing that size doesn't matter. Same thing with, you know, race doesn't matter and, and, and religion doesn't matter when it comes to portraying, you know, these characters. And everyone should be allowed to get equal wages for equal work. Yeah. But unfortunately, back then, that was kind of common for them to um, pay people, um, uh, to pay the munchkins in this case, less than uh, less than, than the dog on, on the film, which, like I said, is horrendous. And... Uh, Totally unfair. You can't see the land of Oz without Warwick Davis's eyes, they say. <laughs> now, the lollipop kids are super cool. I've rocked that outfit, man. I've always loved the lollipop kids. We represent, you know what I mean? Those, those kids are... Uh, well, I mean, honestly, in my opinion, they, they make the complete opening of... of they're, they're, they're the first things, uh, first people that you see when uh, you... Um, uh, watch Wizard of Oz, and they bring you into this wonderful world, and uh, it's just you know, extremely sad. It is very sad, you know what I mean. Uh, I remember they, they like shaved their heads and gave them like fake hair, like like caramel hair. They yeah. were dressed pretty fresh, so I gotta give them credit for that. And I, you know, I know they, a lot of them were uh, getting the drink, and they were letting them get drunk on set and stuff, you know, which is you know. You're making fun of, you know, they're there, they're being made fun of, you know what I mean? It's a horrible thing. It's very tragic. Before anybody goes and hates on Toto, you know, Toto did two films. He did one film before this, I remember, because I remember that, you know, uh, the part of the curse was kind of the Toto vibe, or I think he broke his foot on the set of The Wizard of Oz and he never worked again. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a true story. And that was it. Um, he, I want to say he died too, like maybe five years after the making of the Wizard of Oz type deal. Um, funny story is that I even think there's a book, like a biography on the dog. You know what I mean? And unfortunately, none of these Munchkins got no book. I think the last of the Munchkins just passed away um, in the last couple of years. Yeah. You know, it's a we- it's a weird deal. You know, definitely. You know, Wizard of Oz has so much dark stuff tied to it. You have like the supposed hanging. You know, you have Judy Garland just like she her ending was tragic. Whether you want to whether you want to equate that to this or not, uh, big alcoholic. You know, eventually got her. You know, Auntie M. Auntie M. In the movie went out heavy. She killed herself. She took a bunch of pain pills or sleeping pills, one or the other, and she put a bag over her head, tied it off, and waited for the fucking Grim Reaper. That's uh, that's like horrifying. That's that's uh. Woo! Like that alone is enough to carry a big curse on on that. You know what I mean? Um, very sad stuff. You know, it's so crazy that some of the films that have brought 
the most joy, if you will, to people has su- such dark backstories to them. You know what I mean? I wonder yeah. if there's a, if there's some type of yin and a yang science to that, where it brings so many people joy because it's kind of based off of a lot of negative, bad shit behind the scenes and on the set that it's kind of like, you know, we talk about, we talk about how, um, uh, you know, the kids, kids in, 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 on the set of like the Mickey Mouse Club, how it could have been rough then. What do you think it was back Wizard of Oz times? Oh, I mean, a lot worse. I mean, heck, uh, if I'm right, during that time you had like uh, children's working and, uh, 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 you know, it's, there was no labor laws. I mean, uh, there were a, a lot of times where the the uh, uh, kids were the ones making the money for, uh, to uh, keep the family alive. I mean, back uh, with Charlie Chaplin, the kid, um, Coogan. Yeah. Uh, the, I mean, that's where the Coogan law came in because he made the money uh, doing uh, the Charlie Chaplin movie and a bunch of other movies at that time, and his parents spent all the money. So when he got old enough to actually try to make it on his own, he was dead broke. You know... The financial stuff, the respect levels, you even take into like the, the real dark shit of Hollywood, where they just, you know, some producer would go, you know, me and Tony are going to go in my little, my little, uh, little office area for a little bit while we talk something out. You know what I mean? Like harshness, like the, the, the time of dead bodies being thrown in dumpsters, Alex. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and the thing is that, I mean, Hollywood is, is, is claiming and trying to, you know, I guess fix their image, especially with uh, Weinstein and um, and Epstein and you know all those other um, pariahs that have been living high on the hog in Hollywood for all these years. I think it's a little bit too late, if you want my honest opinion. Mm-hmm. And the fact is that. Uh, and that it's it's kind of uh, here's the thing, okay? That you you have all these people doing these awful things behind the scenes, and and the thing is, I I'm sure that the uh, it's still going on, but the way that they try to compensate for that and try to get everyone to look at something else and not pay attention to uh, using Wizard of Oz reference. Now look at the man behind the curtain is that you have, you know, all these people trying to do these movies. And if, you know, there's uh, outcry about, you know, either not enough diverse casting or something like that, they will pull it. They will put someone else in it and they'll do all that, but they won't deal with the real issue, which is all of this abuse that's happening behind the scenes. So it's like they're like, "Hey, you uh, you don't like this guy? That's okay. We'll we'll cut out all the scenes. We'll shoot all the scenes with uh, with this uh, other person. Tig. We'll put uh, put that person in, and you know we've taken care of the issue. No, what you've done is you're trying to hide the issue yeah. by trying to appease them in one way, but not dealing with the issue. Truth. Yeah." But, you know, it's, and then of course, I mean, you have the, 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 uh, 
other thing is that everyone's too scared to make films that deal with controversy, controversial storylines and all that because everyone's afraid of pissing people off. But I mean, the, the real problem is, is what's going on behind the, the, the casting couches, the, uh, the way people are treating uh, the abuse on set. I mean, all of those things. And if yeah. you actually took care of those issues, then, you know, then it'll go into and be able to make a better movie. Uh, because, but then again, you know, no one wants to deal with what's the real problem, which is all the shits that's happening behind the scenes. Yeah. No, I'm with you for sure. Um, we got another musical, you know what I mean? Um, come popping up, you know, the, the, the Gene Kelly vehicle, you know, got Gene Kelly, Donald O'Connor, Debbie Reynolds singing in the rain. Uh, made famous by Clockwork Orange, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now this was uh, another classic one. You know, Debbie Reynolds had a lot of issues with this one with the guys. You know, the same way we were talking about previously with, you know, the folks of short stature, you know, catching no respect. You know, this is a time when I think the, the female actors didn't really catch a lot of respect as well, unfortunately. And I know this, you know, there's a lot of stories of uh, her being bullied until she cried. You know what I mean? Uh, Gene Kelly, uh, you know, he was very hard. Gene Kelly was very harsh on her dancing abilities. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, I mean, the thing is, I I enjoy Gene Kelly uh, movies. I I don't know him much of as a person, Uh but I did hear about uh, about his. His, you know, bullying of, of, uh, Debbie Reynolds. And unfortunately, you're right. At that time, you know, uh, you know, women weren't considered equal to their male counterparts in, in films, unfortunately. Um, and, and in what, what really uh, makes it, uh, even harder was, well, Debbie Reynolds had done theater up to that point. If I'm right, this was her first. Um, uh, it's definitely her first starring role in the film, which is a great opportunity for a young woman who's trying to get into the business, trying to make a career for yeah, herself. A lot of pressure. Yeah. And at this time, you got uh, Eugene Kelly, who, of course, has done this forever, and this newcomer's coming up, and I don't know whether it's some kind of machismo bullshit or whatever, but a lot of times, which, I mean, we even find today, where when the newcomer comes in, especially if it's someone that the other person does not believe either earned their spot to be there or deserves to be there, that they end up being very harsh and, and mean to that person. And I think that's that's how Gene Kelly saw that. I think he looked at Debbie Reynolds as a... Uh, sweet young girl that didn't deserve uh, being in a great film with him. Um, I think, and and of course he took it out on. And uh, Debbie Reynolds, you know, um, she, I mean, she could have just ran, run away and cried and 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 never uh, continued. But um, if I remember the actual story correctly, that when she was crying, Fred Astaire found her. Now Fred Astaire was not in the movie. Okay, Fred Astaire was doing his own movie, 
on the same sound stage like a stage over. And he came and he saw Debbie cry. And if from the story that I heard, and of course, I wasn't there. I don't have any like proof of this. Yeah. But he offered to teach her how to be a better dancer. And mm-hmm. now, I mean, uh, to be perfectly honest, Fred Astaire is the king of of dancers. Uh, yeah. He's the best. Even Gene Kelly uh, had to admit that Fred Astaire was a better dancer than he was. And Fred Astaire took his time and and taught her how to how to dance, and she you know kept on doing it until uh, she actually her feet started to bleed because she kept on practicing because she saw this as uh, her biggest and and might be only opportunity. And plus, also, I mean, I'm sure that she was she wanted to show Gene Kelly that he was a son of a bitch, right. and that she was going to succeed even if he was going to be a friggin' bully and asshole. Right. So she, you know, she worked with Fred Astaire, and she got better. And, I mean, the proof is in the pudding. You watch that movie, I mean, she's great in the dancing scene. She's she's one of, she's the best part of the movie. Um, but, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, uh, you're going to always get people that want to tear you down because it's easier to tear you down than try to help you up. But when you get to- torn down, occasionally you'll you'll run into like a Fred Astaire who will pull you up and try to help you succeed. Yeah, yeah. Now Fred Astaire, being the great guy that he is, you know he's still super dedicated to his craft, and supposedly he made her dance twelve hours straight until her feet bled speculation. Yeah. But I mean it's it's one of those things that I mean you can then uh, you know argue that Fred Astaire, you know, uh, uh put too much, you know, pressure away on her uh, to a point where she hurt herself. But again, I mean I'm not saying this is right, but uh, I mean I I've talked to uh women throughout the years and they've always said that they've always had to or work harder than men and uh, do it in high heels, and uh-huh. which is true. And and the fact is that it's not right, and it's definitely not fair. But um, at least for the year, gave her the tools she needed to pretty much shut Gene Kelly off, and she was willing to do those twelve hours to you know. To bring her a game, so Gene Kelly couldn't do anything other than just glare at her and and you know continue doing the film. Yeah, whenever I think of like the starlets of that time, I always get a little sad to think of the shit that they must have gone through because very little respect and equality on set. You know what I mean? And you know, I think sex was a heavy motivation for a lot of things. You know what I mean? You know, even today you always hear stories about you know workplaces where you know people are like make sexual advances and stuff like that and it's really kind you know back then it was more lawless i feel where it was like you know the way what like weinstein it was like if you want to be the movie i'd have sex with him you know what i mean i think that there's a long line of weinsteins before him of course you know what i mean and unfortunately probably after him um but i think that it's kind of a vicious cycle where you know if you're an actress on the come up and you go oh shit well you know, if I have sex with this producer or this director, 
you know, I can get in this movie and I really want to be, you know, this is what I want to do. This is my passion. I'm good at it. And, you know, everybody says I can do it type deal. So let's say you go and you have sex with that act, that director or that producer. Okay, now you're on the film. Now you might find yourself with cast that want to have sex with you um, that are going to maybe be angry with you because, you, you know, when we were talking about Callie being upset there, um, you know, I don't know. I almost, it could be, I think there could be some set like sexual thing to that where it's like, and if you're not willing to have sex with your, with that co-star, now you're going to have a bad time on the film. You know what I mean? And it's like, do you, at that point, it's then you really start like selling yourself out heavy. You know what I mean? It's kind of a vicious cycle to go with it. And I'm not giving any hard times to any of the, the ladies because you do what you got to do sometimes. And it's very unfortunate that that's what it was. You know what I mean? But it's such a, whenever I think of that time, I go, wow, it must have been fucking complete hell to be, you know, you like we nowadays we're we're two guys that try and make movies and that's difficult enough you know what i mean and like getting people you know to come in do the whole deal and you know you pay people and you know what i mean and you know sometimes you you, you know you, you can't sometimes you can't pay people so it's a lot of reliability and stuff and you you're depending on a lot of other people for other things so like just the fact that we depend on people like the feeling that i know that we get for depending on people it's like that for them back then but like every time let's say every time you you want something from somebody they want a piece of you like that you know what i mean and then after a while you're not gonna have any pieces left you know what i mean and it's a crazy thing the mentality of using sex for you know favors for payment and stuff like that it's a weird deal um it's very sad i don't want to talk about it anymore so we're gonna get into some candy man don't say the name three times or pro- trouble will happen on your sets, they say. You know, now this film starring the great Tony Todd, this is kind of where every, you know, horror film, um, for, for the folks out there, this is kind of when Tony Todd popped on the scene and uh, became a horror icon through this film, originally from a story of Clive Barker. Bernard Rose directed it. Um, very dark, creepy film you know now the Candyman character himself um bumblebees you know bees play a big part into it um i think the folklore is how he was uh he was having i think he was a i believe he was a slave and he had an affair with somebody's wife or daughter they you know they're, they're like i love and then when the when the like the master type dude fucking found out about it. He, they brought him in the woods and they cut his hand off and then they like poured honey on him and the bees stung him to death. I believe that's how he died. You know, the folklore like Freddie has his burnt in the boiler room type, you know, they burned him. The, the family's burned him up type vibe. That's his, uh, that's Candyman's little backstory. Um, so the bees play a big part where when you see him, you know, as the ghoul, uh, you know, he'll, he opens up his coat and there's bees all over his chest. There's even a scene where there's bees all in his face and like in his mouth and stuff. And I remember watching that being like, wow, that's fucking intense. Uh, but come to find out those are real bees. Woo. You yeah, assume they I are, mean, but it's w- like, God damn. Way, way before uh, CGI was the big game changer. That takes, I wonder where, how he had to get himself into the, into the mode for to doing that. You know what I mean? Uh, it's like, it's a lot. Like, you're an actor. Imagine, 
Imagine waking up knowing that in three hours or whatever, probably more because he's the makeup job for him. Uh, he probably got, it wasn't super duper, but there was, you know, for the chest and the bees and stuff like that. Um, it, it probably took some time, but if you, if you knew you later in the day, we're going to have live bees. And I don't think you've ever seen the film, but they're all on his face. Like it's, it's, it's a problem. You know, the stingers yeah. are probably taken off of them, I assume. But then again, with bees, don't they die when the stingers come out of them? Well, I mean, the thing is that, yeah, um, the whole thing is uh, when a bee stings you, the stinger is ripped off and they die. I mean, so it's not like hornets. Now, if you had hornets, hornets will, you know, sting them, sting you until you die uh, before they die. Um now, in this case, actually, uh, first of all, I mean, it, it's, um, it's great that Tony Todd did not have an allergic, uh, um, reaction to the bee stings. Otherwise, we would not be, uh, talking about Tony Todd today. Right. Or maybe we, we would, but. Yeah, but not, we would be in this episode. <laughs> but, I mean, the fact is that actually he made a deal yeah. that he would do it if he got a grand every time that he got stung. And he ended up walking away with an added $23,000. So, doing the math, he got stung at least 23 times. Uh, yeah, well, less than then they added a tax to it. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a crazy... You think after that third or fourth bee sting in your fucking face, or even in your hand, you'd be like, you know, maybe we should wrap this up, boys. You know what I mean? Maybe we should kind of, you know, you don't think you got what you needed yet? After bee stings, they, they, they bubble up. After a while, if he was catching them on his face, you know, that's going to fuck up. The, you know, they're going to have to wait for the swelling to go down, break out that, what is it, bacon soda and water? Is that what they, they put over bee stings? To suppose it be. I mean, I don't remember. But, I mean, really, as, for, as a director's standpoint, it's like it had to have been the last scene, you know what I mean, or something. Yeah. Even that in itself is kind of crazy to be like, okay, uh, Tony, we're going to put live B. You're the star of the film. doesn't matter if you're an extra on the film. You shouldn't do it. But it's like you're the star of our film, the face of our film, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna put, put a bunch of risk destroying your face. If those bees went haywire and all attacked him at once, they could have maybe really fucking destroyed his face for real. Mm-hmm. Um I always, I knew that they use real bees, and every time I see the movie, I found out after, of course, seeing it, but every time I see it, I don't know how they did it. I, I was like, how the fuck did they do this effect? I assume they probably filled his mouth with, you know, the, I think they used cotton balls back in the day, made something so they can't go down his throat. Maybe, I guess you could, in a situation like that, I would try and just fill his mouth up with something that I could make solid dark color so when his mouth was open it would look like there's nothing there even though it's protected somehow and then maybe something on the tongue um and then do it but there's a lot there's a lot to it i give tony a lot of every every 50 dollar autograph he sells he fucking earns damn it because that i just out of that alone is uh horrifying stuff i don't know if he got up to 50 dollars yet so i won't give him hard times he might be at a reasonable price still but twenty three, an extra twenty three grand. Would you take twenty three bee stings for twenty three uh, for twenty three grand? Um, that's a good question. I mean, me personally, I I would have probably upped up the price, but uh, but uh, I I would definitely be like, you know, if I'm getting stung, 
I'm getting paid. Right. You know what I mean? He, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Sadly, I probably would take it. A beef thing's only going to hurt for like a couple hours and then it'll be gone in a couple days. So I'd possibly, I'd possibly take the old beef stangs. You know what I mean? But, uh, you know, with Tony Todd, we're going to roll into another Tony Todd flick, unfortunately, that has another, another bad story to it, which we talked about it at the top of the show. Uh, the Crow, of course, you know what I mean? Um, super, uh, you know, the film is a masterpiece in itself. It was one of those movies from the 90s. A very, you know, I remember like it was in 94, I believe, was when it came out. I remember that was prime time for me really getting heavy into films. It was an action movie, which means it was getting rented. You know, we never, I was never allowed to rent horror movies at home, but my mom liked comedies and my dad liked action films. So that's kind of what we got in through all through like the the, the 80s and 90s type deal. So The Crow was definitely played uh, in our household. Uh, Alex Proyas from like Dark City and a lot of other cool stuff uh, directed that. And it's a super, it's like the, it's very goth. I mean, it, it almost helped spawn the whole goth thing. You know what I mean? Um, but if for anybody that don't know, you know what I mean? Uh, Brandon Lee, son of, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, <laughs> Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee. Why am I losing my mind? I'm trying to do multiples, but son of Bruce Lee, who also died really mysteriously. Uh, but son Brandon Lee got shot on this. You know, we talked a little bit. We had a, a shock treatment episode where we talked about this because we had uh, one of the girls from it, Rapid Fire, the Rapid Fire Awesomeness with Kate Hodge. Kate Hodge was with uh, Brandon Lee in uh, Rapid Fire, I think it was. But, uh, yeah, so he got shot in this. I know the dude that shot him, um, like, carrot, like it was very – I guess it really fucking destroyed his life. Um he felt bad about it until the day he died. I guess he kind of, you know, it was one of those deals that really wore on him, which it would. It was a case where I guess somebody put, this really wasn't a, this is probably the most well-known dark secret, but like, yeah, there was a, I guess a real round, almost like that rust incident where a real round was put into a gun or, uh, or maybe it was just shrapnel. I forget. I think it might've been shrapnel. Cause even when you're using the blanks in the films, you know, and for anybody out there that gets their hands on a blank gun, making a movie, um, even when you, you ne- you're never supposed to point even the blank, uh, the gun with the blanks at people because shrap metal comes out of the barrel. Sometimes it can shoot into you like a bullet. So that's why even when they're using the fake bullets and stuff, they always put the gun, the guns always half cocked off to the side of what they're aiming at, you know, and the cameras in the right place. So it looks like they're going at them. But, um, yeah, so that was this case. Do you remember when this happened? I remember when this happened. Um, I remember hearing about it. I don't remember whether I heard about it later or when it happened. Um, I do, I mean, I remember uh, uh, hearing about that, and I was like, you know, I mean, it, it, it's always sad when, when something like an accident like this happens right. uh, on, on set, but it, it's always kind of, you know, I think it's compounded with the fact that, you know, his father died pretty young. He yeah. died pretty young. And it's all those possibilities. I mean, 
you watch the crow and you see a lot of a lot of potential that yeah. he had and you know and you know unfortunately it was all snuffed out in that in that situation and and the fact that uh there were a lot of scenes that had to be cut had to be reworked because he died i mean more than halfway through but a lot of things had to be you know jury rigged to make it work um yeah i mean i mean the thing is that safety on set has always been an important aspect but unfortunately uh a lot of people don't seem to understand how important it is and when you have people that don't seem to understand the importance I mean, I've been on set where, you know, people are going through all the safety things and then you have, like, the director or the AD kind of rolling their eyes like, hey, we're burning daylight, we got to keep things going. And I understand, you know, it's a break, uh, breakneck pace that you have to do for films, try to get things done, but safety should never, ever be one of those things that you skimp on on the set. Even if you think, well, we don't have any big, you know, like, uh, blow-up scenes or any gun battles. I mean, even the little, th- little thing can happen and end up uh, fatally or really hurting somebody. And safety is a very important aspect to filmmaking that at times people decide, well, we can just... We can test our limits. We can just skip over it. We can gloss over it. And that's when things like this happen. That's when you get rust incidents and also this incident in the crow. When precautions aren't, aren't taken care of, uh, in, in vain of safety. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, as as your as jo- the job of the producers and ads mainly, but pretty much everybody on set, I think it's you got you got to be thinking what's worst case scenario of things that could happen in this situation before they become real, and then you kind of figure them out and make them no longer re- something that could be a reality. You know what I mean? I know people don't like to think about the worst things that could happen. Everybody's trying to be positive and oh, this is going to be great, but you really do have to consider. What if things aren't great? What if things take a turn for the worst? You know what I mean? And I think in situations like this, the crow and like rust, I think things were going so good or rushed or whatever that all the procedures weren't, you know, weren't, didn't follow through with, you know, well, Hey, we're doing so good. Let's just cut this out. We'll save more time. We'll be doing better. You know what I mean? Or fuck, we're behind. We we don't have time to do this. You know, let's just do it. You know, stuff like that is how mistakes happen. You know what I mean? Um, but for Shizzle, what do you got up next there, Hogman, after The Crow? Well, after The Crow, we have a very uh, famous uh, one, which I think most people have probably heard of, yeah. Poltergeist. Now, with Poltergeist, um, supposedly they used real human skeletons without telling the cast in, uh, in the uh, final scene. And there's, of course, everyone's heard of the curse of poltergeist. A lot of people have died mysteriously after, afterwards. I think the only, is, is Craig T. Nelson the only one still alive? 
I think the mother is still alive, but I could be wrong. I believe all the daughters, I think all the, the two daughters, I think, passed away. Unfortunately, the younger one passed of like some in- intestinal thing where I think she died on the table getting surgery. And the other sister, I think her boyfriend killed her in like the part in like the driveway of the house she was living in because he was crazy. I think that's part of the curse. But I think the mother and Craig T. Nelson are still alive, but I could be wrong. Yeah. The, the 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 mediums that passed away. I know yeah. the cute medium there, little old lady. Yes, but but yeah, I mean it's, and then of course you have to ask yourself. I mean, if you believe in the supernatural, you believe in you know uh, ghosts and all that. That when when you're toying with remains of the deceased, whether that can bring in the uh, spirit of those that you are, you know, playing with, or if there's actual, um, you know, truth to if you desperate, uh, remains of the dead, that it'll come back and, you know, haunt you or make you pay for your disrespect. Um, I mean, I honestly don't really stand by either one of those because, uh, I, I don't think that, you know, I think it, I can see that as like a health issue. I mean, if you're in like a bog with like, uh, remains and they're not cleaned up properly and all that, and you have like decayed flesh or like maggots or whatever that end up, you know, in your mouth or whatever might get, you know, sick or disease that way. I mean, that's how I would see it. I mean, uh, a lot of the, like, if you go back to the mummy's curse, they made a big thing about, you know, they opened the tomb and a bunch of those who opened the tomb died mysteriously. Right. And I know that in at least a few of those cases, they found out that when they opened the tomb, there was some bacteria or something like that that was stuck in the tomb for all those years that they breathed in which caused complications which led to their death. And that could be uh, a thing with, I mean, if you're dealing with, you know, uh, dead remains that might add to uh, some of the credibility of why some people got sick and died afterwards. I think that that was almost an ancient booby trap. Like maybe they crushed up some shit that they knew people shouldn't be breathing in and they had it up on the top of the door or wherever. So when they broke, cracked it open, it, it drifted down. And those first couple of people that breathed that shit in adios amigo, you know what I yeah. mean? So, um, I mean, I, I know my pal, Matt, probably, uh, I believe in the paranormal things, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, so he, like, I'll, he, see, see, he has like a voodoo doll. He has a Ouija bar. No, none of these things I would have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like he, my, he he believes in the spooky, the spooky. So my take on all these used human skeletons is I think that that, as Alex says, that he doesn't think that would really have an effect. I do think it would have an effect. Now, even if you don't want to equate it to the spirits that once dwelled in those bodies, uh, you got to equate it to the people that, you know, are families and friends and culture uh, of of those bodies that are now going. You're, you're buying our dead bodies to use on a fa- a, a movie. Like you're making a mockery of our loved ones. And I think that the negative energy and hatred that they would send over for doing something like that. And if it is a culture of people that believe that they can 
pray to somebody to make things worse for you or if they can do something that'll make your your project troubled and you know i think that uh i do think i do believe that that negative energy is impactful and uh i do think uh it could have been a play you know like when you ever get a big film whenever you you hear of big curses and you go oh well this is you know this film's cursed because that person died that person died uh you know you got to figure like there's a whole deal where now everybody knows you know, you you got to put into the the expectations. Uh, you know, just the people, the the actual human problems that would weigh down on somebody. You know, now they're they're now around a lot of people that might not be actually friends of theirs. Might just be yes people or people that are trying to use you for something. And when they find out that they've invested their time into you, and now they can't get what they ultimately wanted out of it. Now you're a bad guy and they want to kill you or whatever. You know what I mean? Um, now they want to bring you down. You know what I mean? You could add drugs to the equation, all the downfalls of that, going to parties, you know, doing drugs, getting wild, making enemies. Um, a lot of, I think a lot of like human problems come into success like that. And people, you know, they look at the film as being successful when the, when the actual people, you know, their next thing has to be bigger in their eyes. So, like, it's kind of a weird line, you know what I mean? So, like, they, they never really kind of fully, like I tell Hawk all the time, I don't think people appreciate or at the moment of success, I don't think, like, when 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 things are actually starting to change, you know, before going to that next plateau, I don't think you realize when it's happening, you know what I mean? It's almost like after it happens, looking back, you you can go, oh, okay, well, that was that. So, like... Uh, you know, I think there's just a lot of negative energy around it. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the girl, it's got that whole, you know, the kids were kind of made famous. And whenever you see children made famous, it's always a bumpy ride. You know what I mean? It's always a weird deal. And uh, I do know that those two daughters had those tragic endings. And Poltergeist is like a, it's rated PG, but it's like, there's moments of that that are like really scary. Um, it has the conspiracy theory behind it that, you know, Toby Hooper, director of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, directed it. Spielberg, of course, we talked about him earlier, produced it. And there's big speculation that suppose, I always heard a rumor and I, I hope it's not true. I don't know the realities of it, but supposedly Toby Hooper was banged up. Rest in peace. I love Toby Hooper. I'm just saying this from out of purely speculation. Um, but I heard, I heard that he was banged up and Spielberg had to direct it. I've talked to people that would would know the situation and they've told me Toby definitely directed it. Uh, Joe Bob Briggs, you know what I mean? Uh, from Joe Bob's drive-in. We interviewed him for a documentary years ago, right around the time that Toby passed away. And I remember we were talking about Toby after we were done shooting and he telling us how, you know, Toby, you know, he felt bad, always felt bad for Toby because he was always a dude that was getting kicked in the teeth. Whenever he tried to make a movie, they were always kicking him in the teeth and uh, just being real difficult with him and stuff. And he said, he said, no, he goes, uh, of course, I've heard the the conspiracy, you know, about that. But he said to, to that to Poltergeist is Toby's movie. You know, he said, if you watch it, you can really get the vibe for it being Toby's movie. And, uh, I, you know, I accept it as being Toby's movie, but I, 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 you know, the realities of it is I think that there might be, I think it might've been a situation where like, um, you know, maybe Toby 
was dealt more with the camera crew and maybe some of some of like the main actors and then Spielberg. I feel like Spielberg, I don't know for sure, but he could either be two things. He could be very chill and relaxed on your set if he's producing, or he could be super hands-on knowing that it needs to be great, which I feel like he's probably super hands-on knowing that it needs to be great. And in that situation, it's kind of like, uh, he's just not, maybe not even doing it on purpose. He just has like a, a, like a mode, you know, and he goes into it and it's just fucking overdrive mode. We're on set. Money's being spent. Reputations are at hand. Go, 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 go. I'm doing whatever, whatever needs to be done that I can do to make this movie better. That's why I'm here. You know, he could be just like that. And it just could be a situation where it looked like, you know, Spielberg was, uh, all over it because he was but it was still still toby's vision i'd love to sit down with if we ever got a chance and i know people that have interviewed spielberg so i guess it's not a crazy thing but if we ever did get a chance to interview spielberg i would love to know about that i would love that probably be the most interesting part of that interview would be no finding out firsthand what the real deal would be with that but next film up is a film i know that you dig you know what I mean? I I I I don't know. Uh, I don't know about that because uh, I never seen it, dude. <laughs> oh, I thought oh, I got this confused real quick with a, another film. Now you see me. I've seen it. Um, you know, it was that the uh, uh, the Eisenberg, the Jesse Eisenberg. Is that his name from like um, social the Social Network? That's him, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. My... I mean. You had him, you had Woody Harrelson, you had a bunch of other um, uh, people involved. Uh, this one's actually about... Um, Magicians, right? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, this right? one is is about uh, a group of magicians, I think, um, being uh, hired to like rob a bank or something like that. Yeah. And they get manipulated by, you know, I think Morgan Freeman. It, it's either Morgan Freeman or... or um, uh, Michael Caine. I think both of them are involved in the movie. But anyway, the uh, uh, dark secret about this one was uh, uh, Ilsa Fisher. Uh, she has a scene where she's in a glass uh, case uh, with water and uh, she's doing the magic trick. And uh, I guess when she was doing that, she started uh, realizing that uh, things weren't going the way they had planned, and uh, she started to drown. So she signaled to the people that to get her out, but for some reason, they did not uh, either take her a signal seriously or just were enamored by her performance that she was just doing a really great job you know, in, in the film, which... She was. He was drowning. He was supposed to pretend he was drowning. So she, she's actually my second cousin, and she told me the story where after take three, she didn't feel she needed to come up for a, a breath of fresh air, so she just stayed down. And they did take four, and by the end of take four, you know, she was fucking feeling lightheaded. She had to go. She had to do the bubbles <laughs> to the top. But they were good folks. They were yeah. good folks on the set. They had. but. Uh... Yeah, I mean, but I mean, of course, uh, as we know, she did finally get out of there and, and all of that. But that again uh, goes with what we were talking about, about, you know, safety on set. 
I mean, I mean, according to this, he did use the uh, the signal for help, but uh, supposedly no one either t- uh, took her seriously or no one saw it, which I guess uh, really means that they should have figured a better signal for help, <laughs> because I mean, if if they. If he was doing the signal and they they didn't you know catch on that they had to do something, there was a, a failure to communicate. They told her the signal was to uh, think of a flashing red light in her mind. <laughs> they were so heartless on her; they they were trying to get the best shot they could. You know, I'm very distraught over it because, like I said, she's family, and I, I thank goodness she's still with us and alive. You know, it's a blessing. Um, very crazy stuff, water stuff like that. You know, when you go down for a long take, you know, I, I wouldn't want to get down with that. You ever be like, when you're acting, do you ever get caught up in, in the moment and, and get like maybe a little moment where you, uh, maybe lose your breath or something, you know what I mean? Or like, uh, you, you feel like things go off a little bit, you know, not like anything crazy, but something that like might, you know, if you were underwater performing, in the middle of a take and maybe something, you know, maybe you got a cramp, you know what I mean? And maybe, maybe something made blew you off your access of concentrating on holding your breath while doing the performance. You know, it's possible that something like that. Um, I think that, I think that's what she told me. You know what I mean? I think <laughs> there was something like that where she, you know, when you, when you, when you, when you're swimming and you, when you, your pinky toe, when your toes <laughs> like pops out of place, she said, that's what happened. So she, she tried to like, work it through it and it just it started working her way up her ankle to her calf and anybody out there that knows about pulling muscles once you pop that that calf muscle pops out that's it feels like quarter of your body's gone you know what i mean and you really gotta you gotta cut things off cut the party get the safety immediately and uh that's what she did and luckily they were they were quick enough to save her life you know what i mean but if you can't see that then you ain't gonna be able to see this on the set yeah. of Ray, the famous, uh, the famous Ray Charles movie, which <laughs> it was a pretty good film, I must say. You know what I mean? Jamie Fox, I think it's my favorite thing Jamie Fox has done since. Um, and Living Color, probably will say. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, uh, it's it's uh, it's a very good movie. Uh, Jamie Fox really nails the role as um, Ray. And uh, he got an Oscar for that, didn't he? He sure did. Yeah, sure yeah, and, and it's a well-deserved Oscar. But the only, um, the only unfortunate thing is it made him feel like he was a great actor moving forward. <laughs> there's certain role, there's certain roles that are great for people, great for actors. You know what I mean? And then when they pop up and they get on, they step in the shoes of that character. They know him and they've trained themselves and prepared themselves enough. You know what I mean? That it's just, they leave a lasting mark with that role. I think what he did with Ray was fucking incredible. And I'll always give him, I, I don't, you know, he's not really a serious actor. You know what I mean? In comedy, I will say, takes a lot of talent. You know, people are ma- you know, making people laugh. And, you know, it doesn't quite always might feel like it's the same, you know, as a big dramatic performance. But it really, the execution of it, you know, takes a lot of talent and skill. Mm-hmm. So I'm not taking anything away from the dude, but I, you know, I've never been a gigantor fan of James Fox, but you know, what can you do? I, uh, I thought he was great in Ray. And now, you know, he had complete dedication to Ray and he glued his eyes shut. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know about that one, but yeah. 
Well, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, it's, um, I mean, we've had conversations before about method acting, you know, like with, uh, the infamous Jared Leto and, uh, the, uh, uh, award, uh, heavy, um, uh, Daniel Day Lewis. And, right. and when it comes to method acting, I mean, my opinion is different actors have to do different things to get into the role. Yeah. And as long as that doesn't, uh, inhibit, uh, the set or the other people's jobs, I say go for it. I always have, I have a belief that when it comes to, um, acting, mm-hmm. That you do all that prep work before. When you get on set, you're ready to go. You know your lines. You know what you have to do. You know what type of character you're playing. And you go from there. Now, I mean, I understand that he probably um, wanted to really immerse himself uh, being a blind man as Ray Charles is. Mm -hmm. And I applaud him for doing that. I mean, gluing his eyes shut, I think, was a uh, <laughs> um, a poor way of doing it because there's so many things that could have gone wrong. I mean, I've never attempted to glue, to glue my eyes shut. Right. And, uh, I mean, if it got into his eyes or something else or, you know, just if he ended up actually doing permanent damage to himself, then, you know, that, that would have really been bad. Um, but I, feel- I mean, I, I believe that if you are playing someone with a disability, mm-hmm. okay, I definitely do believe, I mean, you should live as that, as that, uh, person and try to live with that disability. I totally agree with that. Now, the thing is that if, you can't take what you've learned outside and then take it into on sets. Um, and, and doing something as, 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 uh, potentially, you know, misguided as going your eyes shut. I think that was a little bit too far. And, and, uh, but I mean, hey, if, if he thought that he needed it and he did a great performance. And I'm, I'm happy that, you know, gluing, gluing his eyes shut didn't cause any damage to him. But, uh, I think that was a foolhardy way of thing to do. And, uh, but, I mean, it's, it's one of those things. You can argue, I mean, you look at Daniel Day Lewis and you see all of the stuff he's done. Like, for example, my left foot, right. where he, he, he really like messed up his back because he stayed in, in the wheelchair at a weird angle to play that role and he only moved his left foot. Um, you can put what Jamie Foxx did in that light and both their performances are extremely well done and really pull the heartstrings. But, you know, it's, you have to be careful that you don't fall into what I like to call the Jared Leto trap, where you just use that as an excuse to, oh, I, I'm a better actor than you because I'm going to these great extremes to play the character. Yeah. Okay? I mean, like I said, I mean, uh, 
like I said, when when you're playing with things like that, I'm I'm iffy on. I think that you should do all the prep work before you get on set, and then you go from there. And if if you can't do that, then I don't know what to say. I mean, I admit it. I haven't done any Oscar winning performances yet, no, but I like to believe that I I like to believe that I can do an Oscar-worthy performance without having to either glow my, glue my eyes shut or like uh, put myself in a wheelchair and have people carrying me around set. Yeah, the carried around thing, it was a nuisance for somebody else, but I'm, I'm sure they appreciated being a, you know, like I'm a bigger dude, that probably would have been my job. And uh, during the time, it seems like something that kind of would suck to carry somebody around on set. But at the end of it, if I, if I, watched the performance and said, man, I, I contributed to that performance, I'd be happy with that. You know what I mean? Yeah, but then again, you could end up with Jared Leto, where on Morbius, uh, uh, he, he he would walk around with uh, those uh, crutches and take like 45 minutes just to take a piss and, you know, hold up productions. And, and the end result is you watch Morbius and it's not a great movie. I mean, his performance is okay, but you don't see, you know, at least I didn't see any great, you know, uh, uh, Academy Award winning performance in that. Yeah, no, I hear you. I'd much rather carry around Daniel Day and hear those stories and, you know, but I'd probably Jared, Well, well you don't want to carry around, around Jared, Jared Leto? Because Jared Leto sent me a text. He said, I want Matthew Fisher to carry me around my next movie. I'm playing a guy that, that a guy that can't uh, control his bowels or walk, so he has to carry. Them. I would say the pay better be fantastic. <laughs> I, I need to wear a specialized outfit that shit never actually touches me. And I said, you you better be open to tell me answer every question that I want to know, and every question. I don't care where it goes. I want to hear every question answered. There's no question unturned. Um, so, but, yeah, but Ray, with Ray, like, I, when he says he glued his eyes shut, I, it's, it's adhesive. It's makeup adhesive. It's not like he's putting Elmer's glue or Gorilla glue in his eyes. You know what I mean? Um, it's something that washes out at the end of the day. But I'm with you, man. And I support the dedication. Like, it is, it does seem a little far-fetched. You know what I mean? I mean, realistically, when you would need your eyes when, 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 they, when they roll cut. You know, somebody has to go get you or whatever. It turns into one of those things. But uh, realistically, at the end of the day, if it if, if if it's what got the great performance, I support it. And who am I to say what works for whoever? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, the super dedication on that. So like, I can't give hard times. But it can be a little too crazy. I guess it all really depends on how much it holds up the set. And uh, if it's one of those things, if it's if it's if it's noticeably upsetting the act actors acting with you for whatever you're doing, that's no good because you're gonna fuck up the mood of the set and just you know throw shit off. But if everybody's cool with it and you're getting a great performance out of them, then for sure, why not? You know what I mean? If me when me and Jamie Fox do Ray two, if he still wants to glue his eyes up, I'm down. You know what I mean? I can't have an issue with that. Uh, you know, because you know what? Me and him, we're going to keep on shining, shining on into the future. 
Now, The Shining, of course, uh, has its has its stories. You know, there was a documentary that came out uh, recently, Room 358 or whatever the name, whatever the room is in The Shining. It escapes me at this moment. Um, but the room where all, you know, the lady in the tub's at um, is the name of the doc. And I had high hopes for the doc. I was not a big fan of the doc. I think, you know, there are certain things that were interesting, but they did start reaching pretty far at one point which I didn't like them reaching far because then it's like, well, now you're just exploiting a classic film for it to make it so you can make a documentary. You know what I mean? Which I don't really support, but um, the first ever documentary, there was a making of that um, his daughter, uh, Kubrick's daughter was shooting or his wife. Um, I think Vivian, I think his wife Vivian might've shot it. Um and uh, long story short is, you know, it's a really cool doc. It's on the majority of the, the, the releases of the movie, you know, and it's just kind of her with a camera going through the overlook, you know, the scenes with Jack Nicholson getting into character and stuff. You know, anybody who likes that movie, we should really definitely check it out if they haven't seen it. But it, 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 it has like, it shows this kind of situation where like Shelley Duvall and Kubrick weren't really getting down and, I've talked about kind of my opinion on this before where Shelley Duvall, you know, was, she was bullied to tears. That was the whole deal. But, you know, it was like an equal amount of difficulty. Like when you see Kubrick dealing with her, he's kind of frustrated with her, you know what I mean? And you only see certain chunks. So you really don't really know where to go. Um, and my overall thing on it is, you know, I heard that, you know, Kubrick, Kubrick's a master filmmaker. And I heard that sometimes he's not as, uh, direct with the actors as uh, as like you might think he would be on set. I think it's more of a pre-production deal and then like once you're on set you kind of should know what you're supposed to do and I'm worrying about the technical aspects. He's a photographer at, at first, you know what I mean? So I think what possibly happened with between those two is I think that she was an actress that kind of really needed a collaborative effort with the director, you know what I mean? Really needed to be hands-on with the director and um I don't think that she got that from him. So I think she kind of acted up a little bit for an attention thing, you know, which I'm not saying she did anything wrong when that's your method of acting. You you need that other, it's like the same way of you acting in a scene with another actor, you need them to play off of, you need, you need something to go there. So I think that there was a situation with like that. I think that's kind of where it stemmed from and they clashed a little bit. Um, and uh, so I think that's kind of where it comes from as far as, but I mean, she could have been bullied. I mean, her character, she is phenomenal in that role. It's one of the best things she's ever done. And she, to be in that character, you need to be pushed to a really dark place. And I know it's not, you know, it's one of those ugly parts, I guess, of directing that doesn't really, you know, you know, there's, the, you can try and figure out a better way of doing it. But like, I get, you know, there to get an emo, if you're not getting the emotion that you want and you know how to get it a certain way and you've got to be hard or whatever to get it, you know, that was a time when stuff like that was acceptable. And, you know, usually I'd think that after, you know, it might be a tough day or whatever, but I think after the fact that you might be able to speak on this, that, you know, the actor might be appreciative that it was a hard day because that hard day brought out the best thing for the scene. You know what I mean? And I think I'd be very curious to see where she, what her thoughts are on it. You know what I mean? After the fact, you know, I'm sure, you know, if she looked, I wonder if she looks at it that way or if she does look at just like she was being bullied, because even though it says she was bullied to tears throughout the production of the film, I assume that whoever wrote, 
wrote like that just watched the documentary. It's not like they sat down with her and she was like, yeah, I'm still fucking pretty broken up over that. So it's quite possible that she was appreciative of it after the fact. I don't think I've ever heard her like trash him after the, after which probably would have, if she, if she really felt like she got fucked over or whatever, I think she probably would trash him up. But, uh, yeah, it's one of those deals. What's your take on that? And I know you're familiar with that. Well, I mean, the thing is, I think I've said this before, um, I, I mean, being an actor, uh, I understand that if a director isn't getting what they want with you, you know, sitting down with the actor, trying to talk to the actor, trying to reach a place where the director needs you to go for that character. Okay. Yeah. That, but. If the only way you think you can get an actor to do what you want them to do is to belittle them, to um, bully them, to make things difficult and all that, um, first of all, I think that makes you a bad director. Um, secondly, uh, it's it shows that you don't know how to cast your film. Uh, because if you, if, if you cast someone and that person can't give you what, what you want and you try talking to them, then you cast it incorrectly and you might have to consider, uh, saying, sorry, I miscast. I gotta get someone else. Okay. I mean, it's, it's horrendous when you have to, you know, you're thinking of, you know, all the last two dates and all that. But that has happened on a lot of films, ending up with, you know, a better product. Um, but if the only way for you to get what you think you need from someone is to torment and hurt somebody, whether it's physically or psychologically, to get them to a place where you want them to be, um, I have a major problem with that. Because I... I mean, it's, it's one thing to try to, uh, become someone, but it's another one to be pretty much beaten into submission right. to be molded in the way that you want them to be. Yeah. And the thing is that if you're a good director, you know what type of character you need and you should have, if you decide like, Hey, I think Shelley Duvall looks great for the role, but uh, I'm not sure that she can get to the po- this point that I need her to get. I would, before casting her, sit her down and says, okay, Shelly, this is how it is, okay? We have to get you... T- so I would, you know, coach her and see if she can actually get to that point. Yeah. And if she can't get to that point, you say, Shelly, I'm sorry, but I have to go with someone else. That's what you do before you cast. I feel I, you, man. I feel you. And I, I'm yeah. more of, you've worked with me before, so you know, yeah. I'm more of a collaborative effort where I, it would, everything would be figured out before you get on the set. Yeah. Um, and I know different directors have different ways, and from what I've heard about Stanley, he was the guy who was, like, in another room. Hmm. He wasn't, like, really as hands-on with people. Which, you know, okay. But... Also, here's the fact that if 
you're not getting what you want from someone. It's less about what they're giving you and it's more about you ended up picking the wrong person for the job. No, I'm vibing with you. I, you know, it's it's one of those things, you know what I mean? You know, it's I'm so stuck on it because you should definitely treat people good. Like, I, I'm all for that. And I don't know what the dealio is with it. I, I think I'm such a huge fan of Kubrick that I just can't. Uh, well, you know Kubrick, I mean? Kubrick is like your your god, and and I I'd be. Well, I mean the thing far. is, I understand, I understand. I mean, Kubrick is a great director. He is, and saying that he isn't would be uh, a be a lie. He is a great director. I see. but but I you know, this. Yeah. this is how it goes. <laughs> you know, I you know because of the situation she was in. I think that what he created and what they created together, what he, you know, unfortunately did kind of use her in a way. Um, but what they created, what that character will live on forever. Like that, and, and it can't, there, there almost can't be any happiness to this character. She's coming from, she's coming from a home that's broken, who the husband is a, is an alcoholic that, you know, makes no money and they're probably struggling all the time. Like she really, the only hope she has in her life is really a kid. And that's kind of like super fucking dark when you really get into like that, you know, the kid's almost going off the deep end. You know what I mean? Like it, she's almost, she's looking at a, a very bleak future. You know, I think it's really there. And, you know, when it, when you really get into it, you know, when, when I, with between an actor and a director, there's got to be a trust there. And I think within that trust is, that vibe of like allowing the director to kind of go within your head to pull something out of you. If you can't pull it out of you at that time. But I think after the fact there should be, you know, I definitely think in a, in a, in a he was rough to the whole shoot, which is kind of ugly. Um, but I, I, you know, I feel like a direct, if you're going to go, like we said before, if you're going to go there with an actor, you need to be able to pull him out of it. So like if you're doing it for a scene or whatever, you know, when that scene's done, you got to console him, you know what I mean? Hug him, maybe. Like, let him know that it was just like a, like, what we got from that, you, you, you know, will be, you'll be appreciative of, you know what I mean? Um, but, like, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's a tough call because, like, yeah, he was hard on her, but at the end of the day, it's like the performance that was gotten and the, and the, the overall impact of the film and huge part she played in it i think it's almost like justifies it in a way again i don't know what their relationship was i know that there's situations like you know with malcolm and uh clockwork orange you know what i mean like they were really cool on set and malcolm thought he had a new best friend in stanley kubrick and when the movie was over he like never heard from him again and he was like hurt by the fact that he thought he had this great relationship with them and then when it was over it was just Peace, like nice to know you, and uh, but I guess that's just kind of how Kubrick was, and you know I think he kind of went into his films in like I don't think he was there to make friends. I think he was like I'm here to make a fucking Kubrick movie that's gonna last forever and people are gonna love, and you guys are kind of lucky to be involved in it, which might sound egotistical, but it's true, man. They were all lucky to be involved <laughs> in it. You know what I mean? It is, and they all they all were lucky to have each other. Like those actors are great, um, but I think it was like. 
he's almost like, I'm inviting you to my party to make something special that'll last forever. And uh, they all kind of hit that RSVP and said, we'll be there. And uh, they signed up. Now, I don't know. I don't really know what the reputation of the Coob was back then either. Like within Hollywood, like if actors said, I'd really love to be on his set, but man, is he a fucking dickhead? Like that could have been a very open thing. You know what I mean? I don't know what the vibe was back then, but you know, so maybe, you know, who's to say she might have known exactly what she was getting into. She might not have. If it's one of those things where, you know, she was brought in kind of last minute or something like that, or she just came off of another film. So there wasn't really enough prep time for them to kind of build a character. Now you're getting thrown into a situation. And if you're just thrown into a situation like that, especially dude, the, the, I think he was so hard because th- when you think of Stanley Kubrick, you do think of one of the greatest to ever do it. So there's like a lot on the line when he's making a film and he knows that that's got to be incredibly heavy. So like when you're just given a, a short amount of time, I mean, I think, you know, it, it's it, to do these things and you might, might not have been able to have that pre-production with the actors or whoever, and you're really running and gunning. You know, I think it's unfortunately pleasantries have to come secondary to business at that point because you're not really given an opportunity to kind of, and I agree. I think everybody should have that time to kind of, you know, gather and talk about the character and get to know each other as people before you kind of hit the battlefield. But if that wasn't offered to them, then I could definitely seeing it be a weird thing. And it's like, are you gonna, are you gonna, are you gonna, you know, it's one of those deals. It's like, are you going to take the time to do that when there's really no time to take to begin with? I think it was more one of those situations, but uh, I don't know. I used to watch the shining when I was home alone a lot. So uh, <laughs> want to pop into the next film, Alex. Okay. Since we know the, uh, the, the great Larry Hankin. Yeah. Uh, next one is Home Alone. Woo! Now, um, I mean, the thing about that, uh, f- uh, first of all, uh, the, uh, the uh, funny thing that happened was uh, there's a scene where uh, you have uh, Daniel Stern, Joe Pesci, yeah. And they put Macaulay Culkin up on a hook on the door. And they oh start threatening of all the nasty little things they want to do to this little boy that has been tormenting him. Yeah. And, and Joe Pesci, uh, he got a little bit uh, too aggressive, uh, maybe a little bit too in character. Yeah. And there's a point where he takes Macaulay Culkin's fingers and he... He puts one in his mouth and pretends he's going to bite it off. Mm. And he actually gave Macaulay Culkin a permanent skull on one, a scar on one of his fingers because he uh, uh, bit it a little bit too hard. But hey, that gives a whole new meaning to uh, finger food, right? Hey. Hey. Nice. Hey, I want some finger sandwiches, huh? Don't overkill it. Don't overkill it. Don't beat it to death. That was a good one, though. I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of a crazy deal. You know, Joe Pesci is so crazy in that character. When you think of, a, you know, Joe Pesci's character for a kid's movie, you know, both of them, the Wet Bandits are a fucking crazy bunch when you really break it down. Um, if they had well, brains to them, they'd be a real problem for people. <laughs> well, I mean, it's funny because one of the things is that Joe Pesci had to be uh, censored a lot because uh, uh, very adult words had the tendency to keep on uh, cropping up in really? his in 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 Home Alone. 
And uh, if you remember watching Home Alone, there's a lot of points where Joe Pesci's character is like, and the reason he did that was every time he tried to improv anything for those scenes, he kept on saying, oh, fuck this, yeah, fuck, yo, shit, bit, fucking cut, crap, shit, you know, and, um, and, and, and the thing was that he ended up doing the schedule sounds to try to keep himself from, uh, giving Home Alone an R rating. That's funny. Well, you know what came right before Home Alone the same year? Oh, uh, Goodfellas? Goodfellas, yeah. Ah. Uh, he was still in fucking, uh, Tommy, Tommy, uh, DeVito mode when he was fucking doing yeah. Home Alone. Well, I mean, I mean, it's it's funny because uh, Home Alone. I definitely think oh. Joe Pesci did a great job in that, and uh, and I think uh, it was good for his career to show that he can, even though his career still mainly stayed as gangsters and those kind of characters. It was nice seeing him in something in a little bit more, um, how should I say, family friendly. Yeah, that, that first Home Alone movie is iconic. You know, it's one of those legendary childhood films. You know, the score is fantastic, too. I got the vinyl of it. It's nice. You know, I try and check it out on the holidays. Uh, I really love, you know, Daniel Stern and Joe Pesci as those, those lovable burglars that, if they, like I said, if they only had a brain, they'd be up to real trouble, you know what I mean? They could do some real damage. Um, but a gigantic fan. Gigantic fan of Home Alone. Good stuff. Um, he got his fingers bit off. You know, it makes sense. Well, he didn't have it bit off. He got it bit. I mean, he didn't make, you know, Nicole uh, Culkin the uh, man of four fingers. I wonder if there was blood going down. You know what I mean? Yeah. You think there was some blood going? I don't know. Made, made, uh, uh, made a scar. Yeah. Probably then he had to have got some blood flowing out. Where it is born, you know. Um, so I dig with that. Uh, I got the dude from like Christine and, um, deranged in there too. That's the scene when he comes in and pops him with the shovel, kills him off. Mm. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, uh, older guy. Yeah. You know, so, you know, we took a little cruise. We're going to end volume one here. Um, on Home Alone, because we want everybody to go and listen to that Larry Hankin episode, bring up the hits on it. You hear all types of crazy, awesome stories from uh, the set of working on the Home Alone film, you know what I mean? Chris Columbus, John Hughes, great John Hughes story in that. One of my, I think my, my one of my favorite, ep, uh, favorite parts of that episode uh, is getting into John Hughes, you know what I mean? And that's a really great. I really, you know, not to toot our own horns, though. I really, that's a good episode. It, must, it covers everything. It covers hanging with John Hughes all the way to the extinction of humanity. You know what I mean? It's quite a thing. Uh, so definitely check that out. You know what I mean? If you enjoyed this, uh, Volume 2 will be coming for you next time out the gate. Uh, this is very interesting stuff. We like the dark side of things over at the cast, so... Uh, we're definitely going to be diving into a lot more of these. So if you're home alone and you're looking for something to do, you catch out the Boombastic cast on the YouTube at Boombastic Media. You know, check out Boombastic Media, you know, the, the podcast that runs beneath the streets over there, the podcast network that's carrying the heats. You know what I mean? 
chirping like beaks, doing it nice. Uh, we got the boom bat. You got Patreon boombastic streaming for anybody that wants to support the cause. Always appreciate it. Very, uh, you can get in there for five bucks and get all the early releases you could ever dream of. We got a ten dollar tier, all the films and everything uh, from the podcasting stuff, and then we got a nice twenty dollar bill for you. Uh, get you know, be a very boombastic person. Talk to your town. You know what I mean? You got a little bit of everything, uh, a lot of good stuff, cool stuff out there for it. So support, we appreciate. And dark stuff in Hollywood, yeah, we instigate. Here we go. And then we'll catch y'all on the next episode of the Boombastic Cast. Peace. 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 Peace.